And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. A new year, the same team. The Vancouver Canucks have lost three straights as we ring in 2023. It's not looking good for the home team after it was looking good late in the year, but here we are, Harm. The VanCast 2023. Will we be having the same conversations all season long about how this team continues to operate at the top of the cap, how the same problems this week are the same problems next week, or... Wow, is it is it ever going to change? Because looking at these last three games, <sighs> well, it has to, right? Like it's going to at least closer to the deadline. They're going to have to sort of make big changes in terms of the makeup of this roster, the future direction. I mean, we're recording this on January fourth. I don't think it's too late for them to make a New Year's resolution to finally blow it up and rebuild. The one thing that they've always been avoiding, but. Yeah, I mean, that game against the Islanders, the thing that struck me was the Isles aren't even that good of a team. They didn't even play their A-plus game, even their A game, and they still blew the Canucks out. Like, that's embarrassing for a Canucks team that had playoff ambitions this year. I think what was really striking throughout the game was kind of the difference, and I've talked about this in the past, the difference between bend versus break defense and the quality difference in how New York, even when they were under siege, even when they were struggling to play their game, they had a baseline of maturity, responsibility, and defensive commitment, right? You look at that first period where the Canucks were all over the Islanders. The thing is, the Islanders were still collapsing to the middle, boxing out, and you look at a lot of the scoring chances that the Canucks had. None of Vancouver's shots were the type where they could just walk into the slot and pick a corner, right? Like they were allowing a lot, but like a lot of the sort of opportunities that the Canucks had were sort of 
tips or you had situations like a Miller chance in the slot, which, um, you know, there's a stick in the stick in the lane, like a Parise stick to flex it out. Or um, they're just, they, they weren't giving any freebies. It's like, I don't think we talk about this enough in, in hockey, but obviously in basketball and the NBA, we talk about the idea of contesting a shot and how close is a defender to um, where a player is, is kind of shooting the ball. Well, well, I think that matters a lot in, in hockey too, where every time the Canucks were shooting, it's like the Islanders had the proverbial hand right in the face, right? Like they always had a stick or a body there to at least, even if they got the shot off, you didn't have all day to sort of pick your spot. Whereas when the Islanders would have scoring opportunities, it's like they were able to walk into the slot and they had all day to sort of, uh, to sort of pick their spot. And the difference too, in the commitment blocked shots, 18 to three for the Islanders. Like that's just, the way the way that the Owls were clogging the middle versus how the Canucks were doing it um, night and day. And you look at all the goals that the Islanders scored, so many of the scoring chances that they had, again, odd man rushes, situations where, you know, Barzell, like Barzell had like three seconds in the slot off his goal to to pick the top corner. And in today's NHL, in the modern game, every player can absolutely snipe the puck. Like if you give them enough time and space, like you th- even think about Curtis Lazar, he's the least dangerous Canucks pl- offensive player. Will you even go back throughout his career? This is a guy in Lazar who scored 38 goals in the WHL in his draft year, 41 goals in 58 games in the dub the year after. Like he wasn't a grinder growing up. He was always a sniper. The point being is that from lines one to four, defense pairs one to three, every player can absolutely rip it. But it's only the Canucks that seemingly give opponents um, all day to sort of where it's like, all right, we're not like we're we're not gapped up close enough to contest a shot, and that's what really struck me as uh, as a huge difference uh, in that game that maybe we don't talk about talk enough about is um, the distance between sort of closing gaps and and how long you have to sort of um, make plays if you're playing against the Canucks. Well, you know, all, all of that is true. But for me, I go back to the tried and true of what the team's problems are. And we should let everybody know um, before we dive too deep into the weeds here in these three games and uh, that they've just lost here. But also we will have Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects on the show in our second block as we talk uh, about the World Juniors and some of the kind of prospects as this team's got to be looking at the other end here uh, as opposed to continuing to try to beat their head up against the wall trying to get into the playoffs with this group. But um, we will get into it with Cam and, and as always I expect he'll have some big time insights not just on Connor Bedard but about uh, LaCaramacchi and Pedersen and, and the Canuck prospects that are there and how things are going for them. But let's you know as we talk about this game I just can't get past what's always been the problem for this team and that's their defensive turnovers. Right. And Quinn Hughes, who's had a decent season, but not where we expect him to be in terms of continuing to progress. Right. We're not seeing the best of Quinn Hughes. And what did we see from Quinn Hughes? We saw a turnover that led to the first goal. Uh, they're exiting the zone. He and Tyler Myers, he's trying to lead him up ice a little bit. I'm not sure whether I want to hang this one on Hughes or whether I want to hang this one on Myers because he could have attacked it, but instead he decided to hang think- back a little bit. Right. I, I think I just quickly to, to just jump in there. I think that was a case of like when Hughes is breaking, breaking out 
from that spot, like the defenseman, like Myers needs to be there as a passing option. It's not a great play by Hughes by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that's more on Myers than it is Hughes. And the reason I think Myers was tentative there and wasn't as aggressive stepping up the ice um, and being an option was because I don't know if you remember late in the first period, Myers also had a play where he was pinching a little bit aggressively and he was caught out of position and they sort of led a two on one. So like what I wonder is if Myers sort of got burned late in the first period by being a bit aggressive, I think that was part of the reason he was a little bit tentative there. It and might be, but there were also two Islanders in the neutral zone right there. So it, it could have been on Myers. Like uh, you're right. He needs to be a passing option, but looking at that play, it just strikes me as Hughes putting Myers into real danger if he attacks up ice with those two Islanders right there. And when you talk, and you're, you're right, I mean, he was probably tentative for the reasons that you outline, and he does need to be a passing option, but it still seemed like a really, really risky play. And these two have never had chemistry together and all the time they've been together, right? I mean, we found early in year one with Hughes that Myers is not the guy he should be playing with. Nonetheless, um, you know, Bruce Boudreaux after the game described all three plays as perfect passes right on the tape to the other team. And it started there. And then we get Myers play from inside his own end where he just throws it up the ice right to an Islander. Like it was incredible how perfect the pass it was. And, you know, we, we go back to that Winnipeg game and how the Canucks opened the game with an Elias Pettersson goal where I can't remember the name of the Winnipeg defenseman who threw it right to him. And we're talking about what a great read. Great read. That's a Canuck level pass that just happened to wind up on the stick of Pedersen. But we're just used to seeing it from the other end. And, and I'm just scarred. So when I look at those plays and then Ethan Bear, um, you know, the, he is in complete control of the play. You've got four checkers bearing down on him, but he has time and he just panics and spills it. Right. And like, I, I don't know how you fix this. This is who these guys are. And instead of Hughes bringing everybody up a level, they've kind of brought him down a level because in terms of turnovers, we're seeing it from him too. Um, it, you know, like Luke Shen is kind of the one guy I believe in right now in terms of performance relative to role, relative to expectations, right? Everybody else, you just, I, I can't wrap my head around just how predictably bad in the same ways this blue line is. And, you know, here they are again, right? Um, it was a game where they had all sorts of opportunities in the first period. Like you said, the Islanders showed a different level of commitment in terms of minimizing the damage than what Vancouver did, but the Canucks showed absolutely no resistance. And quite to the contrary, they just made it easy by extending the Christmas break and giving gifts left and right in this game. Yeah. And even Shen, you mentioned it. I think for, even for him, the last couple of games, I think his form has started to slip just a little bit too in terms of situations where he i think you know bobbles the puck at the offensive blue line and um maybe gets burned a little bit or he has had you know the odd turnover here here and there as well so i think it's right now as as a collective the blue line is just not um not able to sort of connect these plays they're making a ton of these mistakes and you know i just look at it look at um the way that this team's played and the stretch that's coming up. And this is basically the nail in the coffin. Not that a lot of us really had a ton of hope or, or optimism at any point in the season anyway, 
but there were points maybe in early-ish December um, or, or or whenever they had cut, kind of come off that road trip and they'd beaten San Jose a bunch. Um, some of those bottom fe- feeder teams and they were at least um, within striking distance of a playoff spot. But I think all of us, like there was never really any hype around it because we could see even when the Canucks were sort of winning, even when they were squeaking out um, some of these victories, it would like it would require a lot of overtime and shootouts, and you still saw a lot of these defensive flaws. There was never a point where it felt like the Canucks were really controlling games. It more felt like, okay, here's a stretch where they're outscoring their problems, and uh, with Demko out and knowing that you pretty much have average at best goaltending. Um, although you know maybe that's not fair to say, considering um, before the game against the Islanders. Martin and Delia had Delia had given them a couple of really good starts, but knowing that they don't have elite goaltending to save them, I think all of us knew that the bottom was kind of going to um, fall out on these guys. And um, and now, I mean, I just entering a three game skid, and they're going up against Colorado, Winnipeg, Pittsburgh, Tampa, Florida, Carolina, Tampa, Colorado, Edmonton. Like, oh my goodness, I. I don't even want to think about what um, what this next stretch could uh, could look like. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to look good. There's no way around that. And, you know, I know they're talking about Thatcher Demko uh, coming back sooner than later. Bruce Boudreaux said before the game that he's hoping that both Demko and Pearson will accompany the Canucks on their upcoming road trip, five-game road trip. Not that he's necessarily expected to play at the front end of it. Hasn't been in equipment yet, but they're hoping to get him in equipment by the end of the week. And, you know, I think that hope is that maybe by the end of the trip or soon thereafter uh, with a couple of practices on the trip that he might be able to play but he wasn't great before right like I mean it's not like he's going to come to the rescue and be the savior for this team and if they plan on that all they'll do is put him back in another injury situation and Martin was pretty good in this game especially in the first half until it got to be about 2-1 he made three five alarm saves and the fifth goal was kind of meh right like it's probably one he should have saved but at that point they weren't coming back down 4-2 and he bailed them out of a lot of messes in that game so that we look at the first period a lot differently, you know, and say, oh, they were great in the first period, but they still gave up some high-end chances uh, going the other way, right? So I I just, I, I look at this team and I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, um, you know, and we'll get into what the path looks like for the other end. People keep wanting to now say, this team should actually tank. Even people who still had playoff aspirations are so many. And yeah, they'll all jump back on the bandwagon in a three-game winning streak. But that three-game winning streak isn't happening in January, not with this schedule. So before we dive into all of that, I want to ask about a couple of other little things. JT Miller. Um, a little thing. <laughs> wow. Like, he got booed. He got booed. In the intros, like it wasn't loud, it wasn't sell the team level booze, but the market is starting to like wane. This is a player that two seasons ago, how many articles were written about JT Miller being the only guy that drags this team into the fight? And like it's changed tenfold. And now he's having to wear the club's decision that's going to have to happen about Bo Horvat, who continues to play incredible with two more goals in the last game. We saw the Colin Delia situation with which he was convinced, Miller was, that 
Nobody cares about it if we weren't making a big deal about it. But I think that's a little tone deaf. And then on top of that, he essentially says that my totals offensively are down because I'm not cheating the game. And we've seen numerous examples of him not back-checking, of him not giving that effort level. Um, like, this is not going to end well, right? And I mean, it's not just the turnovers. Like, his puck management is as bad as any Canuck defenseman. They're force-feeding him at center. The best of JT Miller this season was on Bo Horvat's wing, but now he's in the middle where he doesn't belong, and he's going to be playing with, you know, pl inferior players. So I don't see his offensive production at five on five getting any better anytime soon. And then he makes these tone deaf comments that I'm not cheating the game. And, you know, we've seen like comments from Kevin Bieksa, who's so beloved in the market, saying that, you know, you know, you can't say and do these things and then not back it up and show instances of him not making effort. And that's not what this player is supposed to be about. Yeah, we know he's emotional. Right. Yeah, we know that there's a personality. You're not going to fix it. He knows who he is. We know who he is. As much as we maybe don't think it's the right thing, he's not going to fix it. And the best of JT Miller is, you know, when the Canucks were going through all the COVID situation where he he's the guy that stepped up and said, this is bullshit. We can't play this schedule. Right. But then and people talk about this is the true captain of the Vancouver Canucks. And now we see the other side of it. And we've got seven more years of it. And the market has already tired of the player. It's frightening. Well, one caveat I want to put in before getting into this, um, you know, this overall kind of ugly situation in terms of I do think that the comments about, you know, I have my, you know, a part of my lack of production is because I haven't been cheating the game. Like, I think I think that was taken a little bit out of context because he was he was only saying that in the context of December. And when you are only, you know, talking about December, yeah, there were absolutely ugly back checks. And, you know, I, th I think he's wrong for having framed it in that way. But at least it's like you can look at it in in December. Miller, in terms of five and five goals against, did have the fourth lowest um rate among Canucks forwards. So he is right that in in the sense. That like he didn't get scored on as much, so I think in in his own head he thinks, well, I didn't get scored on a lot in December, and I think he's sort of looking at it from that perspective. Again, I'm not saying he's right because December still wasn't good enough defensively, but it doesn't seem you know totally ridiculous and totally tone deaf as it appears on the surface. I think, um, but having said that, I think overall we're seeing Miller kind of regress to the type of carelessness and problems that he had as a young player right like this is the jt miller that drove elaine vignon nuts in new york in terms of the turnovers and the defensive lapses and the bad body language and a, a player who's easily frustrated i thought he had mostly put that in the rear view mirror when he came to vancouver but he seems to be undoing that that progress and the one thing that strikes me um, when I think back to Miller's career arc and, and how he kind of finally figured it out and took the next step as, um, as a top player is it required accountability for him to sort of tighten his play and tighten his maturity, right? Like when I last season wrote um, a feature on, on how he did kind of figure it out, there was one quote that kind of stood out to me about his time in New York 
Um, and, and it kind of goes, quote, we didn't have time. He's talking about New York. We didn't have time for BS there like turnovers. We didn't have time for no back checking. And it's like, if you make a mistake, you're out of the lineup. That strikes me because in that New York environment, especially in the 2014, when the Rangers went to the cup final and Miller's in the press box, that pissed him off so much that in that summer, he made the conscious decision that I like, I mean, I've got no choice but to get my crap together. And, you know, that, that caused him to sort of become more serious, become more focused, like pay more attention to those habits um, and details. Like he, he was forced to care about them to get the minutes that he wanted. Even when he came over to Vancouver, Travis Green told him, hey, you'll get everything you want in terms of power play and penalty kill and leadership. But you got to come in and show that you, that you earn it, that you, um, you have to show me you deserve it. Whereas like you look at both scenarios there, there's a certain standard he needed to hit in terms of his habits and on ice play in order to earn the, the 17, 18 minutes of, of night, the power play, the penalty kill. Whereas now he's allowed to make those sort of turnovers or allowed to sort of not back check. And there's no, there's no consequence for it. Right. And I'm not saying you got to scratch him, but if he's not fixing the back checking and turnovers, you got to start cutting him down to 15, 16 minutes a night instead of the, the 20, 21 that he's playing because why would JT Miller change and fix those habits if he doesn't get um, if he doesn't get pu- punished if if everything's just the same as if he's playing well as if he's not playing well? Yeah, it's it's a difficult situation for him because he's just such a visible player, right? And he's such an important player overall. Now, I mean, he is, you know, when you look at the salary, right? I mean, he's going to be right at the top of the of the food chain for this team next year, and then we'll see what happens with Elias Pettersson. You know, he's right there. You look at. Uh, what he's going to be making right now, and you compare that, you you can't have this be viewed as a bad contract instantly. And I think when he was a 99-point player, nobody expected him to sustain that. I think we all understood that if he sat there somewhere in the mid-80s, that that was going to be reasonable because of the other things he brings and what that contract could look like. Because, you know, at the end of the day, and if he could maintain that level of production, that will become pretty reasonable money for that level of production. Yeah. But for his production to be significantly below that projection and then still have these level of visible mistakes uh, and nobody else that they can necessarily lean on, it, it's going to be difficult. And, you know, he's a player that people have suggested the Canucks should move on from before the no trade clause and the new contract kicks in next year. And now there's a little bit of noise on the fringes that, yeah, maybe there is some interest in him. I, I don't know. Um, but if you're JT Miller, I know for me, the biggest surprise for me was that he wanted to re-sign and extend here, right? He always strikes me as that American player that eventually would get tired of the noise and the volume in a Canadian market and would eventually want to go back. He wanted it. That should have endeared him to everybody here. But based on what we're seeing this year, the relationship could get pretty toxic and he will, I'm sure, blame the media, but the fact that he got booed, I'm not sure that's because of the media. So we'll see if it gets worse before it gets any better. Hopefully there's some production that comes. So it does get a little bit better, but um, as soon as that trade happens for Bo Horvat, the microscope and the bullseye is only going to get bigger on JT Miller. When we come back, Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects is going to join us. We'll dive in to the World Juniors, the incredible play of Connor Bedard, uh, the Canuck players that are involved in that tournament, particularly for Team Sweden, that and more when the VanCast continues. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is the World Junior Hockey Championships. We're into the semifinals here on Wednesday night, and we are delighted to have with us Cam Robinson, the Director of Scouting for Elite Prospects. And uh, Cam, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. And, you know, we, we've got to dive right into to Connor Bedard, right? Because that's really the big, biggest topic. We'll get into the Canuck players in a minute. And we kind of hope, Cam, that he is eventually a Canuck, although we know that that's uh, the chances of Harm and I winning the lottery are probably more likely than that actually happening at this point. But um, the fact that this guy is toying with this level of hockey, I just got through a 10-year session of living in rinks with my son playing minor hockey. And this is what it looks like. Like when you, you've got this one kid out there that just toys with everybody else. And that's what Conor Bedard is doing with the best under 20 prospects in the world. It's it's difficult to put into words just how impressive he has been at this event. But if you've been watching him for this season in Regina, the last couple of seasons, you know, even going back into it his his exceptional status season is that this is what he does um you know i was chatting with his bantam coach and he was saying the same thing that he loves the spotlight he loves the tight games the big moments when he was applying for exceptional status there to the whl which is something no player had ever been granted uh when all the big wigs in the chl were coming out to watch him to make their decision he dropped six points he showed out more than more than anybody ever usually does um, against a high level of competition. And so he lives for this limelight. So, you know, in the Western League, he's putting up, you know, two points a game. Oh, well, let's go to the World Juniors and we'll put up four and a half points a game. You know, really lock it in that this is this is the type of player I'm going to become. Um, I I projected him to be the top player, the MVP in the top four to this event, but I did not see him ending up with, you know, 25 or 30 points or whatever he's going to do, something magical. Um, it's been truly, truly impressive. And um, you know, without him, I think his his magic has really kind of masked some of the deficiencies of this Canadian team. Um, I'm not sure they're in the semifinals if, if Connor Bedard is just average for a 17 year old. Well, on top of that, you know, when you look at what this tournament looked like and how it translated to the general public back in August. Right. Um, you know, and I know coming out of COVID and it was awkward summer hockey, all of that, but just so much stench around hockey Canada that people just didn't want to validate what was going on. But it, it's become so important for hockey Canada in light of a leadership change, you know, playing this event in Halifax where they've really taken it on because they don't have a professional team there and, and all of that kind of thing. And, and like, it's just all lined up so well for the event for hockey Canada, for all of it, that he is making people forget about a really, really bad time in, in the state of hockey Canada. 
Oh, without question, right? Like this couldn't be going better for Hockey Canada at this moment that they're, like you said, they're hosting a strong event. Um, it's been getting tons and tons of support there. Um, the fans have been excellent. And then of course the Canadian team has been doing well and they have this superstar just blowing everybody's minds and, and just dominating the news stream. And, you know, you look at a kid like Logan Cooley for the States, who's second in scoring at the tournament, has over two points a game himself. Nobody's even talking about it. On it right like it's, yeah. it's a non-story because it's all about Connor bedard um just his his star shines very very brightly and uh you know hockey canada probably owes him a few chicklets at the end of this too for for really helping them uh, dig out of a pretty deep hole before i let harm jump in here i i want to ask you about how Connor bedard's game translates to the nhl because you certainly think he's going to be in the nhl next year as the number one overall pick you know and, and there's some players who their game just translates faster right like uh you know because They've got a particular element to their game that's just going to, regardless of the age and all of that, it's going to be able to happen. And we know about his shot. We know about his release. Um, will this guy be an immediate impact NHL player? I don't think we can project anything else. Um, you know, normally in a normal world, you look at a player like this, who's a late birthday, you know, a July birthday. So he, he'll barely be, he won't even be 18 when he's drafted, right? He'll barely be 18 when the season starts next season. He's only five foot 10. He's a center. Um, he's coming out of junior versus like a pro team in Sweden or something like that. Is that those are all things stacked against players to transition to the NHL right away, you know, to make the NHL right away, not necessarily to even be an impact player. But he is so incredibly talented. He's so incredibly smart. He has everything you want in a player. Um, sure, it'd be great if he was three or four inches taller. And then you could be like, well, now we have Eric Lindros with Austin Matthews shot and Patrick Kane's hands. Um, but that's kind of what we're looking at is we're looking at a guy who's going to mimic similar output as, you know, what Patrick Kane did his first year. You know, Sidney Crosby came in as a rookie and put up 100 points i think that that would be unfair to put that kind of expectation onto him um but i don't think it's out of the question for him as a rookie to flirt with triple digits now i think it's all going to depend on where he lands as well right where is he going to be insulated is he going to have some talent to work with because right now he can do it um in regina he can put up these monster points without much help um against junior kids um you throw him in the desert or something like that in arizona and he doesn't have much to work with you know it's going to be a lot harder for him to rack up those monster points right away but again, I don't think we can discount anything from him. I, I, I think by the end of his entry-level contract, if he's not challenging uh, Connor McDavid for the best player on the planet, I think that'll be a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, I think a lot of Canucks fans going into this World Junior Tournament had Sweden as kind of like their second favorite team after Canada just because of uh, Jonathan LeCaramacchi and, uh, and Elias Pettersson, the defenseman both on uh, on Sweden's roster What's your take or impression been of uh, of those two Canucks prospects uh, so far at the tournament? Well, let's start with the positive. Um, I think Elias Pettersson's done well in the role that he's been provided. Um, he's he's just a sturdy, intelligent defenseman. Um, he I've I've really been impressed with his puck handling throughout this season, and you know I think he's done well at this tournament as well, moving kind of around the lineup. You know he's. Uh, the, today he's playing on the third pair on the left side you know he's been up on the first pair he's been on the second pair he's seen a little bit of power play minutes he's killing penalties i think that this has been a successful tournament thus far for him and i think that he's elevated his his stock throughout this season and throughout this event um i think canucks fans should be really pleased with him uh where the canucks got him and and that he's projecting to be an nhl player which is what they need desperately especially on the back end like has been another story it's it's been a 
it's been a very challenging season for him and it's been a very challenging tournament. Um, you know, in the quarterfinals, he against Finland, he was basically stapled to the bench, um, except for on the power play. And he saw about five minutes of action today in the, in the semis here against Czechia. He's listed as a 13th forward. I know reports out of Sweden TV, they were saying that the plan was that he was just going to play power play minutes. I did have the game on there with my class before lunchtime here for a few minutes, and I saw that he got an even strength shift in the first period there. So that is something. But the fact that they can't trust him to play at five on five at this level, when, you know, even going back to that summer tournament in August, he was expected to be a, a major contributor for them um, to replace maybe Alexander Holtz, who wasn't there to be that kind of gunslinging shoot first guy that can really do some damage off the off the wing um, on the power play. And he just has not been able to get going. He's his effort level. Uh, the work rate is really low and it seems to be creeping down lower and lower with each passing game. He, he's, he's lacking confidence. Um, he is a slight winger who struggles to get onto the inside and doesn't have great wheels and that uh, those are, are are kind of a dangerous combination of of skills to have um he obviously has the great release so when he does get open and and he has the puck on his stick he can do damage in a hurry which is why sweden has kept him on their second power play unit um but no it's been a it's been a really struggle struggling tournament for lakiramaki um which is just you know that that that's been his entire season and now it's bleeding into this tournament granted you know he had the concussion coming in so he hadn't played for a few weeks so we knew it was going to be a challenge for him to get rolling but you know at some point the excuses that they they can't keep piling up right he had mono you know eight months later there were still kind of people using that as an excuse for why he wasn't playing well now he has a concussion um it's it's He's got to start producing um, at home. He's got to start producing at events like this. He needs to score goals because that's what this kid does best. And if he's not scoring goals, he's really not contributing all that much. On top of obviously prospects, you also keep keep a, a close eye on, on just young players throughout who've kind of graduated from prospect status. Canucks have, obviously have a couple of those in Vasily Podkolz and in Nils Hoglander who um, recently have have both gone down to uh, to Abbotsford to play in the American League. You've followed both guys really closely as prospects and obviously even as young players now as they you know played in Vancouver the last couple of seasons. How do you view their development, um, especially in light of them going down recently? How much of a yellow flag do you think is it that um, they haven't been able to take the next step so far this season? Or, or do you think a lot of it is just a veteran coach in Bruce Boudreau who um, is incentivized to win now and, and is kind of coaching for his job and doesn't really have a lot of time to um, be working in developing young players. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there with that second part there is that it I think a big part of their development, I don't want to say stagnation, but uh, I mean you could look at it in that regard is that the opportunities is that Vancouver is a, a club that should be putting a great deal of focus on developing their young players and and yes, the NHL is not a developmental league that, you know, you get paid to win games and that the players on the roster there they're not looking at, at draft status and and where they're going to be in the lottery. They want to win games. They're professionals, they're competitors. Um, and the coaching staff is obviously coaching in that regard as well. But, you know, when you look at the roster, when you look at what's coming up, Nils Hoglander and Vasily Pod Colson are very important to this organization long term. These are two guys that made the NHL at young ages. They have high pedigree, they have high skill level. You need them to break right. You need both those players to be top six, you know, top nine forwards for you anyways, long-term, and that can contribute on special teams and that they can play two-way hockey. Um, and the fact that neither one of them have been able to even hold steady with some of their previous production levels and output, um, it is concerning. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's the end of the world that both have found themselves in Abbotsford this season um, because 
because they are still young players, right? Hoglander just turned 22 and, and Pod Colson is still just 21. Um, what I would like to see from Pod Colson down there with the, with the baby Canucks is that the kid's got to shoot more. He has a good shot. Um, we've seen it in the past. He, he's been able to score goals. He can score from out high. He can get in those gritty areas and bang around and, and get kind of those short goals. Um, I need, and we need to see him shooting the puck a lot more and kind of taking that into his own hands um, rather than kind of deferring to, to the, the more veteran line mates. And Hoglander just needs to find consistency. Um, he needs to find what his role is going to be. Um, is is that an energy guy who's going to be able to chip in some offense sometimes and maybe develop into a penalty killer? Great. Then then let's lean into that. Uh, you know, I don't think he has the skill level to be a driver of play on his own line. So he's going to have to do a bit of everything. Um, and he's I think he's figuring that out a little bit. But the opportunity where it's like if you're playing only 12 minutes a night and you make a mistake and all of a sudden you're stapled to the bench or you're out of the lineup then the next night it's hard for young guys like that to get rolling so it's going to be a process with both these players neither one of them are slam dunks um so they need to be brought along properly and and so far you know it, it hasn't been great for for the player development and and that's kind of been a, a long history in vancouver as they struggle to develop players that aren't <clears throat> excuse me aren't you know automatics like an elias patterson I want to circle back a little bit to, to the two Canucks that are in the World Juniors right now. And let's start with Lakaramaki. Like, what is the next phase for him? Like, what's the best plan in your mind over the course of the next 12 months after this tournament? What level should he be playing at? Where is he going to succeed more to get things back on track for him? You know, I, I've been asked this a few times. Like, is it is it the right move to be leaving him in Sweden? Um, you know, I, I've talked to some people in Sweden who who hate and these guys are based in Sweden. They hate when these young guys are playing in a in a top tier league or in the Allsvenskan, like like Jurgarden is this season. The way they got demoted, um, is that the, the opportunity for these young guys isn't usually there. You know, I mentioned Elias Pettersson. Obviously, what he did in his draft plus one season as an MVP of the Swedish Hockey League is just unheard of stuff. But for a kid like Lakiramaki playing for Jurgarden is that they got relegated and that's that's a big hit to their financials and so the organization as a whole is like we need to get back up to the SHL we do not need to spend time developing young players we need to bring in veterans we need to ice a, a really strong team and we need to be promoted back up so their development is not at the forefront at all right they they'll play the young kids Liam Ugrin, Noah Austin and Lakiramaki often play together on that third line um Lakiramaki's been demoted to the fourth line for long stretches too um and if he's not producing he's not going to be in the lineup so does it make sense to bring him over to Vancouver next season to play for the Giants as a 19 year old and I think there is, I think there's some validity to that because he would come over, he'd be playing the North American rank, North American game. He would literally be down the road from the Canucks. They could have their hands all over him. I'm not sure if that's a good thing as we were talking about their player development system, but it, I, th I think it would be a positive thing. Um, so personally, if he had any interest in doing that to come over and play in the WHL, I would encourage it if I was Vancouver. But at the same time, if you're Lakiramaki, he's been playing pro now for two seasons. You know, is he really going to want to jump and come over early to play junior hockey in Canada. I, I think he's far more likely to want to come over and play in the American League next season. But I think the the issue with his his progression here and his development, not not taking the steps that we've wanted to see, um, that'll be a, a pretty big leap to go from the Elsvenskin where he's playing third or fourth line minutes and not doing well to jump into the AHL. So I I predict that he's probably going to be with Jur Gardens again next year. Whether that's in the Allsvenskan or up in the SHL, if they can find a way to promotion, um, I think he'll probably be there and he'll probably be seeing similar deployment, you know, middle, middle or bottom six deployment, second power play unit time if he's lucky. 
the thing with him is he he needs his confidence going. He needs to get hot and, and all shooters get into those streaks where they, you know, might pop eight or nine goals in a 10 or 12 game stretch and all of a sudden they're world beaters. Um, but they go cold for 10 games and, and nothing they do is right. Right. And so he really desperately needs to get hot. Um, it'd be great if it happened at this tournament. It hasn't. Uh, but when he gets back there, I, I think it's really, really important to find some some confidence in this kid. And yeah, and if I'm Vancouver, I'd certainly be floating the idea of coming over to Vancouver to play for the Giants at some point. And Pedersen on the back end, like, what do you see as a timeline for him? He's doing what what's needed. He's having a good tournament. He's projecting as an NHL player. Um, you know, what's next for him in terms of his path? Yeah, I take my time with him. Um, you know, he's... He'll turn 19 next month. Um, he's already, you know, he he played the first half of his season in the J20 there for Orobro, and then he's been called up and he's been playing in the SHL. And and the the club has obviously noticed his strengths. And you know, for a good long while there, he was playing three minutes tonight, five minutes a night. Um, and a lot of time you look at that and you're like, ah, you know, for an 18 year old, that's not great developmentally. Like we'd rather him be playing 23, 24 minutes a night in the junior circuit. Uh, but he was getting those reps at a high level practicing with with shl teammates learning things the nuances of the pro game and consequently his role has elevated significantly with orbro this season so you know before he left for the world juniors he was seeing 15 minutes nights 16 minutes a night in those last five or six games um so i'm expecting when he comes back he's probably going to be feeling even more confident coming out of this tournament and that hopefully that role will continue where he'll see second pair of minutes and he'll see a more elevated opportunity and deployment and i expect that He'll be with Orbro again next season, um, playing in 19 and then 20 year old season sort of thing. Um, and hopefully he steps up again and he can keep moving. I don't think there's a big rush. We're looking at this this type of guy is that you, you're hoping he's sliding onto the NHL roster at 21, at 22, um, maybe after a year in the American League and kind of figuring out the North American game. Um, he's a physical kid. He's a strong kid, um, but he's also he has good feet. He has a good first pass. Um, I think he's, he's proving that he can handle the puck better. Um, it wouldn't shock me. If he ends up being one of these guys that kind of ends up being a second pair, kind of do everything for you and and not make a lot of noise, not get a lot of publicity, um, but really be a, a stalwart player and a helpful player to a team long term. But yeah, there, there's no real rush on this kid. Kemma, a couple more for me. For starters, when you just kind of step back and look at this 2023 draft class as a whole, I think uh, a lot of the focus now for Canucks fans is where exactly do they end up? You know, at the end of the season, in terms of um, lottery status and and what kind of draft pick they could get, how much of a difference do you think it is if the Canucks can continue to tumble a little bit in the standings, and even if let's say they don't end up in the Bedard sweepstakes, if they sort of what's the difference if they land in the five to seven range in terms of um, in terms of pick at this twenty twenty three draft versus say. 9, 10, or 11, how much of a difference is there with this draft class in terms of the quality of the the player you could be potentially getting? Yeah, so there's there's tiers, as there always is. And obviously, number one is Connor Bedard, and that's a big, fat tier ahead of everybody else. People did like to try to make some noise that maybe Adam Fentilli, with how excellent he's been at the University of Michigan, that he could maybe challenge. He can't. Um, the next group, we're looking at Fantilli and Leo Carlson, and some people consider Matt V. Mishkoff in that group. I think he's the hair behind those two so it's called two three a group themselves and then yeah that four five six zone mishkoff you know zach benson will smith andrew Cristal, um highly skilled players uh but you, you have a bit of a weight on all of them those those first three guys you're probably getting an nhl player the next year maybe their draft plus two season you're you're waiting on them um but you're getting impact players down the middle of the rink you know a couple of them with size things that vancouver could desperately need um once you fall out of that 
kind of seven zone. Now you're you're kind of into the more here's a good player, here's his warts. You know, Delibor Dvorsky and Oliver Moore, who has great speed, but you know, some missing some intangibles. A uh, uh, Jaden Perron, who's you know highly highly skilled, really strong defensively, but he's five foot eight. Um, a kid, a big strong defenseman like Dmitry Simishev, um, who is you know skates really really well for his size, makes good plays, but you know probably projects to be more of a defensive defender a defender um, on the left side. So uh, you know there's there's going to be some really nice options. This is a very strong draft class. Um, it's been heralded as such. Um, it's not going to be the kingmaker that we had hoped it was going to be, a la the tw- 2003 group. Um, it's not going to be that level, or even the 2015 group. I don't think it's going to be at that level it's just got the high end top end um but there's going to be some options so wherever vancouver ends up drafting um they're going to have a good shot at a player uh, assuming it's in the top 15 but obviously the closer you can get up to those top two or three tiers the better you're going to be um and obviously replacing picks that they've lost you know more second round picks you know get some more darts because there's there are some some really talented kids that are going to fall out of the first round that are going to be options for for a team like vancouver who has such a thin pipeline to really kind of stockpile and add to it but they're obviously going to have to start pulling the trigger on some deals and and making some a concerted effort to look towards the future which is something that you know this regime and the regime before has has not shown an inclination to do this far what's your take on how far you think the canucks could potentially fall in these standings over kind of the second half of the season, especially if it includes around the deadline, potentially moving guys like Horvat and Chen or, or maybe even an Andre Kuzmenko, especially with uh, the Canucks having a really tough schedule over the next few weeks and them kind of, you know, they're already in a situation where um, they're 25th in the league. Phillies sort of tied with them in points. Um, even a team like Arizona is only uh, four points back with a game in hand. How, how far do you think the Canucks um, can realistically sort of fall in, in the standings over over the second half of the season? How low can they go? Hey, um, it's like you said, they're going to have to they're going to have to ship out some bodies because this team, as it is right now, isn't good. It's, it's, it's not bad enough to fall that far. I think this is about where they are. You know, um, we they've shown us who they are. They're wildly inconsistent assistant but they have a ton of firepower up front um you know they're going to get thatcher demko back he's hopefully going to look like the thatcher demko he had in the past maybe not for their for their draft stock um but if they if they move out players if they move out horvat and kuzmanko and if they can shed one of those d salaries or something like that um maybe they can get down around 29 you know 28 29 i i don't think anyone's catching columbus anaheim or chicago those guys that those three teams have they're clearly going for the basement, especially Anaheim and Chicago. And, and that, that's going to be hard to catch. Um, you know, I think, I think San Jose, I think Arizona, Montreal, Philadelphia, all those guys, Florida, St. Louis, uh, I think they're all not great teams, but they all have skill uh, enough skills that they're going to probably be able to win out at a near 500 pace or a 450 pace. Um, so yeah, Vancouver could have done this a lot earlier. They could have made some moves in the summer and, and really task themselves ahead for, listen, there's a generational talent in our backyard who wears a Canuck jersey on the weekend when he's hanging out with his buddies. Um, let's go make a concerted effort for there. And hey, if we if we shoot for the moon, we're still going to land among the stars, right? We might get a Leo Carlson. We might get an Adam Fantilli. Um, that's that's going to be helpful as well. So uh, 
I just don't, I just don't believe that they're really going to make such wholesale changes to make this roster poor enough to really, really bottom out. So uh, my expectation is they are going to be in that kind of 24 to 27 range. Um, and, and you never know with a team like this that they could go and, and, and blow things up as they normally do and go on a heater in March and end up like 21st or something like that too, and, and really kill their draft stock. So, um, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but I've been a, a suffering Canucks fan for long enough to know that good things don't usually come easy for them. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, it as Drancer always says, it takes a, a lot of purpose to finish high and be a real contender and the same level of purpose to bottom out. And not sure the Canucks have that level of purpose at all, but we'll see where it goes. And uh, either way, we'll be tuning in or listening into all of your uh, your insights. And thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks all for having me on, fellas. It was fun. That is Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the Canucks path to bottoming out and what that could look like. Because, boy, if you've watched the last three games, they don't look that far away. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So, Harm, we knew this was going to be a make-or-break schedule portion for the Vancouver Canucks. We knew that they had a couple of games in late December, followed by the uh, the Islanders that we just saw, then Colorado, Winnipeg, Pittsburgh, Tampa, Florida, Carolina, all on the road before coming back to face Tampa, Colorado, and Edmonton before they finally get to breathe on the 24th against Chicago. Like, that is a murder's row in the biggest way. Yeah, I know Florida hasn't been great, but we know from a true talent perspective and how they're controlling the puck, they're miles ahead of Florida. And, you know, for me, I predict, you know, I predicted the Drancer article was going to come. You know that, right? So, which one? one, they were they were back to NHL 500. And, you know, I've, I've, I've teased Drancer that every couple of weeks, there's this big picture article that Drancer puts together, and I've called it Mexican food. Because, you know, in, in Mexican food, like every dish is the same. It's some type of tortilla, refried beans, some sort of protein, rice, salsa, guac, wrap it up, and you either fry it or you have a tortilla above and below or you wrap it differently, but ultimately there's different packaging and marketing and a different name for it, but it's all the same food. <laughs> and we, and Drancer every few weeks comes up with an article to basically say, this team sucks. Don't say they don't suck. Don't say anything is possible. This is why they suck. This is how they got into this position. And this is what they need to do. And every few weeks we get that article. So it's just, it's packaged differently. So the latest one was packaged as a, this is what 2022 was for the Canucks and how they were in the mushy middle. But if you actually look at the ingredients of said Mexican food and the Drancher article, it's, it's, you know, like it's, this is how they got there. Stop saying they're not here. And they double down on it by doing this. 
and they're effed and this is what needs to happen. Right. So um, I, I called it because they were on the winning streak and they were at, you know, Bet- Bettman's version of 500. And I said, after the next two game losing streak, the article is going to come and it came. And it just, you know, it just happened to be December 31st. So I got, I got lucky on the timing, but um and, and that's not a shot because you know how much we both love Drancer's work. Uh, but uh, like, so here we are at this stage of the schedule and they're not crawling back from this harm. Like they are not going to crawl back and all of a sudden go on a run, you know, with these next nine games, they're not winning six of them. They are not, they're not going to win four of them. And they're going to be in a position at that point that, is everybody in that building going to finally look at themselves if they haven't already and say, this is the path? They have to, right? I mean, it's funny that, that you mentioned the idea of like repackaging, basically, it's just sort of like the same point. Because earlier this morning, I was actually looking at um, trying to go back and I accidentally stumbled on an old article that I'd written at the start of the 2021 one um campaign the all canadian division year two years ago now by the way which is kind of crazy to think about and um and the whole article was about how um the canucks were in this disastrous position because they cut corners on a rebuild and they finally got to commit to a long-term vision and plan and wow it's like two years later and they're like basically everything i I wrote in that article still applies today it's actually kind of sad to think about but it's worse because they've added JT Miller's contract to it. They've they brought in Ilya Mikheyev, who's been a really useful player for them, but doesn't necessarily fit where they should be on a build. You know, you're gonna have you're gonna have to move on from the the most character player you have in that room in Bo Horvat. You know, you're gonna have to pay crazy to keep Elias Pettersson in this mess, right? Like I still believe he's walking away. I still believe he will be Vancouver's Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk and walk away. But there are others who think that I'm wrong and that he's going to want to sign here, but they're going to have to overpay to keep their own guy, let alone get a hometown discount. It is worse than when your article was written two years ago. There's also the OEL contract. So that's, I mean, there's two anchors there. Exactly. We haven't added uh, that to it. I think the one sort of um, positive, at least, about Horvat sort of having this absolute tear, which, by the way, another couple goals against the Islanders. Thank goodness he's priced himself out of Vancouver's range and that it's not really like it's it's highly unlikely that there's any path for the Canucks to be able to to keep it. Because if he had just been having another average season um, more along his sort of career averages and he wasn't sort of upping his market value with every goal that he scored, I would have been worried about, man, is this team going to look at uh, their future think that they have to still commit to this sort of retool and sort of force themselves into sort of keeping Horvat. And now that he's sort of gone, I mean, I don't know how, how anyone can sort of look at the situation and, and think that there's a path for a retool to work, right? Like this team is sort of closer to the bottom five than it is a playoff spot. And that's with Horvat, a top six centerman, chipping in 28 goals already. He's top five or something in, in the whole league in goals. You're going to subtract that from the roster. How are you going to be doing anything but sort of tearing it down and going scorched earth? You have to, in my opinion, sort of commit to that direction. Um, and you have to hope you're already at the point in January where I think most Canucks fans are look ready to look at the schedule and go, I hope most of these are losses. 
I know it's really tough to watch. I know it becomes depressing after a certain amount of time, but like that's that's really what I'm paying attention to most because again, the margins for the Canucks right now aren't that far. Like like San Jose right now is 29th in the league. They're only four points back of the Canucks, right? Like there's if they real if the wheels really fall off the bus here, and you eventually get to the point where you start shedding some pieces. Again, I have skepticism about. Like I think there are there there are other teams that are still so much worse that um, you know I don't you know I don't think that they're going to be in the Bedard thing. But man, like this, especially with Demko sort of not quite back in the picture yet, I'm looking at the stretch and going, I if you're a Canucks fan, you hope they lose out. You do, and and like, what's a realistic expectation? Like the way this team is playing is not going to get any better. The schedule might be the biggest favor the NHL has done to the Canucks because it could take their heart away. Like it could literally take their heart and soul away. And I hate to say that's a good thing, but it's a good thing because the bump they got last year, you know, and obviously there's not going to be a coaching change. I shouldn't say obviously, but it doesn't appear that there's going to be a coaching change. They'll let this ride out to prevent a bump. So emotionally, they kind of are who they are right now. And, you know, they will give up like that's who they are right now. Like they will give up. Right. Like we see signs of it with with Miller now. And if Horvath gets traded, which, you know, from a cultural perspective, I don't want to see, but it has to happen. It's the right thing. And if that happens sooner rather than later, and it probably doesn't happen till the end because of the contract situation. Right. It just becomes so much easier for a contender to take them on at that point. Um, Demko is not making this team better. So I don't know what the lifeline is for this team. You know, is there a point in the schedule that all of a sudden, like at the end of the month, they've got Chicago, Seattle and and Columbus, right? And certainly Columbus and Chicago are even more committed to going in this direction. Then after that, they come back. They've got a they've got a four game road trip and, you know, New Jersey, the Rangers, the Islanders, Detroit, you know, so not necessarily great teams across the board, but. When I look at it, I don't know that the schedule necessarily gives them a lifeline. So I, I see all of this, and I just think that they really, really could bottom out. And as bad as it sounds, it could be the best possible thing. And the irony in all of it, Harm, is if it happens, management will say they did it on purpose. That's going to happen. They will say this was part of the plan, where every move they've made tells you it's not part of the plan. But if they manage to execute on a Bo Horvat trade, they'll be able to look themselves in the mirror and say this was part of the plan. I mean, maybe. I think going back to the schedule, the one thing I will say about this kind of next stretch coming up in terms of the worry from a tank perspective is that some of these teams are in a, like in terms of their current present day form, they are in a little bit of a weaker position than than they you know might normally be in right so you got like colorado coming for example on thursday they've gotten mckinnon back so that's a great jolt but they're still a really banged up team in terms of byram and and manson out on the back end Yachushkin, landis cog um they've they're just a really really banged up team right now so colorado's not quite what they are usually and it kind of reflects in the standings where they aren't really anywhere near the top of the central division. 
Um, the Jets are banged up too, right? They've missed Ehlers. They've missed Wheeler. Um, recently lost Perfetti. So that's like three really important offensive pieces. Um, recently, they were out. You know, they they were missing Schmidt as well. So the Jets are kind of banged up. Then you've got the Penguins. Um, the Pens are have 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 been skidding a little bit um, over the last handful of games as well. They've I think lost two or three straight and. Um, they're without Petrie as well, so they're not they're not quite um, um, you know at at the absolute apex of of their form. Um, you're gonna have Tampa twice, which is I mean great because Tampa's Tampa. They um, should, in theory, on paper at least, anyway, be able to sort of steamroll the Canucks um, as as should Carolina. But you've also like even Florida on Saturday. Florida's been an absolute kind of train wreck this season under Paul Maurice. Um, of course, on talent, they're still better than the Canucks, but it's not as if they're playing elite. And that would kind of be my worry from uh, from a tank perspective is, yeah, like the Canucks on paper are still worse than all of the teams I just mentioned, but the gap isn't maybe as huge as, um, at, you know, as it may normally be if these teams were healthy and, um and sort of at the top of their at the top of their game i still expect expect the canucks to really get steamrolled but it's it's you know i'm I'm not saying it's a guarantee at least for the next uh two weeks that they could you know pick up two or three wins out of the next you know seven for example so for now um with the with the bo horvat situation is there any chance you see him getting moved sooner rather than later? Yeah, that's a really good question. My sort of worry in terms of not worry, but the reason why I'm not as, um, as certain about the fact that you can get this done sooner rather than later is that teams just don't have that much cap space until they get close to the deadline. I think a lot of teams right now are sort of, waiting and they're sort of accruing that daily cap space and there are barely any teams that um that have the available sort of room right now to take on a five million dollar plus uh plus cap right now especially since you know i i imagine if the Canucks are making this deal that they're not exactly um looking to for example retain salary and in that case i mean like there's no trades happening right now like there's no real there's n- there's not even a whole lot of activity or or a lot of intense rumors going on right now just around the whole league so that would be m- sort of my reasoning for why I think it it may still take some time um I mean look things can happen but I, I just think that in this sort of climate right now with how many teams are up against cap I think it's going to you know, uh, this is just my guess. This isn't me sort of leaning on Intel or anything. My guess is that it'll take close to the deadline. Yeah, unfortunately, it will. And interesting on the Luke Shen front, the club has said, or at least it's been reported, the club hasn't formally said it, but that if they do move on from Luke Shen, which everybody's expecting, because he's certainly going to be coveted at the deadline for a playoff contender looking for defensive depth, that the Canucks would be very interested in bringing him back. Um, in the offseason on July 1st, which I think would be great news because he's been a great fit here. He likes it here. And if they can still acquire an asset and still bring in a player like that, I think that'd be a great thing. So let's see if it winds up going that way. But uh, with that, a three-game losing streak is how the Vancouver Canucks have opened 
2023. I know a couple of those games were in 2022, but this is our first show. So uh, we look forward to it. We're also going to run three live rooms with Drancer and I. So we'll we'll get those scheduled and make sure we post when those are coming. I know that uh, the VIPs always enjoy those. We'll get some guests involved with that. Harm and I will be back next week. It'll be a lot of fun, man. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed Cabo. I don't know what you did during the break. Yeah, I uh, I did take the last week of uh, December off. I, I had a bunch of... Um, what does off mean for you? Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, like, what does off mean? Like, do you, you know, do you, do you oh. hit the nightclubs? Do you work out no. extra? What does off mean to you? Uh, I mean, definitely still hitting the workouts. I, I had a bunch of my close friends all coming back, coming back for winter break. So I uh, hung out with them a lot. I went to the Contact Music Festival at BC Plays. Um, nice. And yeah, I just hung out a bunch, ping pong tournaments, um, kept, uh, at, took a break, unfortunately. Sorry, ping pong tournament. Yeah, we had one. We went to the rec room at Burnaby and just among friends, we uh, we had a ping pong tournament. Yeah. What, what, what are we calling a paddle ball? Like, what's the game now? The old folks game that young oh, guys... Oh, pickleball, pickleball. Pickleball. You didn't know there was no pickleball? Uh, unfortunately not. They, um, I think uh, with the Christmas spirit, they're like, uh, got to stop the young guys from terrorizing the seniors. So, yeah, I'm well, kind of right, get- right in the middle. I'm not a senior yet and I'm not a young guy yet. So I haven't really got the pickleball craze in either direction. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, um, I am leaving Friday for the college football national championship game. I was in Atlanta for the college football playoffs. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to going to LA to see that. Uh, probably, I might even catch up with Travis Green, but I'm not going to go watch a game, a hockey game under any circumstances for the record. <laughs> anyway, if you want uh, more hockey content, Mikhail Sergachev of the Tampa Bay Lightning joins Rob Pizzo, Joe Smith. And Jesse Granger on the Athletic Hockey Show Roundtable this week. And as for us, hey, follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform and leave a rating and a review. You can subscribe to the Athletics uh, NHL's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the Athletic Hockey Show. Get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Again, we'll get you the schedule for the rest of the show's this month along with the live rooms that and much more happy new year folks hopefully the canucks can tank and make it even happier come draft night